You are listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For more information, please visit our website at sungrove.org. Well, good morning. So good to be here together with you today. We're starting a brand new series called Everything You Need. And I don't know if you've ever packed for a trip and realized on that trip that you forgot something, but a number of years ago, I went to speak for a youth camp for a week, and it was during spring break. And uh, my friend Brent Eldridge, who was here, he was at the men's retreat. You guys remember Brent? And then he came in and spoke here Sunday morning. So Brent was a youth pastor, and he invited me to come speak for the week to the youth. And we went down to Palm Desert, and so it was just beautiful. We're going to go to the water park. We're going to play volleyball. I'm going to speak every morning and every night to the students. It's going to be a great time. And I get there, and we get to, like, these condos that we're staying in. And, and I, I open my bag, and I take out, like, my shirts, and I take out my shorts, and I take out my my slippers, you know, my sandals, my flip-flops. I'm gonna, we're going to play a lot of volleyball. We're going to hang out, have a great time. I take out my swimsuit, and I go to take out my underwear, and I don't have any. No boxers, nothing, right? So I'm like, all I have with me is the pair I have on. And I'm thinking, if I wear it forward, backwards, inside out, forward, backwards, that's only four days. And I'm never like seven days, so it's just not going to work, right? So very shortly, I have to admit to Brent, hey, Brent, I, I don't have everything I need. For the week. So we had to go like out to Target and Palm Springs, find, you know, and get some boxers and make it through the week. And you feel very relieved when you realize I have everything I need to do what God is calling me to do, to make it through my vacation, to be with the students for that week. And, and we often question, do we have everything that it takes? Do we have everything we need to live a godly life? Do you have everything you need to be successful in life? And so often we're aware of our shortcomings. We're aware of what everybody else seems to have, but maybe we don't have. And we begin to question, God, could you actually give me everything that I need? And as parents, if you're a parent in the room, you want to give your kids everything they need so that they can be successful at adulting. Because you don't want to be their friend, you've got to be their parent, that you're supposed to be their parent in their life and to walk with them, but to prepare them so that when they are adults, you now are on almost a peer level and you have that friendship at that time, but you want them to be successful. We want technology to give us everything we need to make my life more connected and more convenient, but technology comes along with updates and vices and bugs and costs. We want our government to give us everything we need for a working structure. We want civility in our land, and we want transportation from government. We want them to provide for security and for disaster relief and for peace and representation. But so often corruption and human weakness get mixed in with that structure and challenge those intended results, don't they? We want money to make us secure, but the trap of money is that the more that you have, the more what you have has you. It's not so easy to pick up and move anymore as compared to maybe when you were a younger person or you were a young adult. We want life to be permanent, but we realize in our own life and the life of people around us that we are mortal. And we begin to question, do we have what it takes to live a godly life? In the words of the famous 80s theologian Howard Jones, he says, you can look at the menu, but you just can't eat. You can feel the cushions, but you can't have a seat. You can dip your foot in the pool, but you can't have a swim. You can feel the punishment, but you can't commit the sin. And you want her, and she wants you, and we want everyone. And you want her, and she wants you, but no one, no one, no one ever is to blame. And I won't sing the whole song for you, but you get the idea. It always seems like there's somebody to blame. 
It always seems like life just isn't going to work out. It always seems like we're just going to get close but not make it. We're never going to achieve utopia. We just, we don't think we have everything it takes to make life successful. And it seems like there's someone to blame and the Apostle Peter begins to write in the book of 2 Peter in your Bible that's near the end of the Bible. If you want to flip there in your paper Bible or if you have a digital Bible on your phone or a mobile device, you can just open that up to 2 Peter. I'll be reading from the New International Version today. And as you're opening to that, I want you to realize that Peter is writing to a group of people who had someone to blame. They wanted to blame someone. In fact, they had a pretty good target. His name was Nero. Nero was the emperor of Rome. And Nero wanted to rebuild Rome. He didn't like how it laid out. It didn't have his fingerprint all over it. But he wanted to get rid of it and clear the slate so he could build new things. And so he had a fire started that burned down most of Rome. And the Roman people were pretty convinced that Nero was behind it because of his grand plans to rebuild the city. And as they began to bring that accusation to him, he turned around and blamed the Christians. And if you're the emperor of Rome, you're seen as a God-man by those people. And if he speaks that it was the Christians who did it, then those people turned around and began to very publicly persecute Christians physically, emotionally, mentally, economically. They begin to attack, imprison, and shut down businesses of those who were Christians. And in that time, it was a time of turmoil. And the Christians who there, who are Peter, is now writing to, they're looking for hope. They're looking, do we have everything we need because we're under duress? And at that point in time, Peter comes along to begin to encourage the church. But you think, well, maybe he's writing from far away and maybe he's exempt from the persecution, but he wasn't. In fact, church history tells us that Peter's own wife was crucified in front of his eyes. And as she's being crucified, he begins to encourage her with the words. He says, remember the Lord. Later on in about AD 67 to 68, Peter himself was crucified by Rome. And Rome basically wanted to crucify him. And he said, like, I'm not worthy to be crucified like my Lord Jesus Christ. So if you're going to crucify me, crucify me upside down. And church history tells us that, in fact, Peter was turned upside down and crucified by Rome. He wasn't exempt from persecution. He's not writing to people that he's not walking with. He himself is facing it firsthand. And so in his first book, Peter taught us how to live victoriously in the midst of hostility. Earlier this year, we did a series called Headlines, and we talked in that series as we walked through the book of 1 Peter, we talked about as Peter began to show us that you can live victoriously as a believer and that by living an obedient and victorious life under duress, a Christian can actually evangelize a hostile world. And we begin to look at that. It was, a, it was a look at the very public response of people who are being persecuted and, and how not to take revenge and how to trust the Lord and how to walk and bring value to a culture even when that culture is against you. And if you're newer among our congregation, if you're newer at our church, you can obviously go online to sungrove.org and watch some of that series on demand when you're at work or driving or commuting. It'd be awesome for you to be able to do but Peter wanted the believer to take their hopelessness about their circumstances and trade it in for a living hope. So we can trade the ashes of persecution for a future that starts now. They thought, oh, we don't have a future. It's all getting taken away from us. And he says, no, you have a future that starts now. And he began to walk with them through that. We begin to ask the question, well, who... Who will give me that future? Do I have what it takes to make it through persecution? Do I have what it takes to live a godly life? How is that actually going to happen? 
And Peter now begins to, in his second book to the same group of people, he begins not with a public battle about how to respond to persecution publicly, but he begins to talk to people about how to trust God and to respond to persecution privately. And this is a, a bigger arena, in my opinion. Because isn't it the private battles that you and I face that are the tough ones? The inner battles that are like the insecurities, the doubts. Do I have what it takes? Can I actually make it? Will I make it till the end? Can I live different than culture? All these private insecurities and doubts and fears that lurk within the life of the believer. And they threaten to derail his or her life. Peter will convince over the next five weeks, where as we look at his book, he will convince you and me that we have everything we need to live a godly life. So here's what I'm going to have you do with your hands full of stuff. Just stand up right where you're at. Bring yourself up with you. We're going to look at the screen and we're going to read the theme verse of the book of 2 Peter. So just stand up with me and out loud we're going to read this verse as it comes up here on the screen. Let's read this together. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Thank you. You may be seated. Father, as we come before you today, we ask that your word would be spoken, that you would just uh, minister to our hearts. God, that your Holy Spirit would do its work in our lives as we listen to you today. In Jesus' name, and we all said... Amen. So I'm going to read the first 11 verses of the book of 2 Peter. And if you have your Bible, you can obviously follow along there on the screens. He says this, Simon Peter is writing, he says, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and through Jesus Christ our Lord. His divine power, I want you to catch that. You have everything you need because of your power? Nope. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them, you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. He goes on and says this, For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness mutual affection, and to mutual affection love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have them, they're nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. For if you do these things, you will never stumble and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Right in this passage, right away, Peter's going to put out the word and say, God has given you and me everything we need to live a godly life. And you live in a culture, you live in a society where you go, unless I operate at the level of people who've been doing things for a long time, I don't think I have everything that I need. And you might say, I don't have enough Bible knowledge. I haven't been a Christian long enough. I've never prayed publicly. 
I never have done. And you go on and on and on with what, all the things you think that you lack, and yet the scriptures are telling us right here, God has given you internally, by his divine power, not your own motivation, everything that you need. Second Peter 1 verse 4, he gives us some encouragement. And I want you to catch this. He says, through these, what is these? It's the divine power and God giving us everything we need. He says, he has given us his very great and precious promises. I want you to earmark that for a minute. Promises. God has given us promises. Why? So that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption of the world caused by evil desires. And here's what happens in the life of the believer. You and I, when we're born, we have a sin nature. We are bound by evil desires. All we do is operate based on our own nature. That's all that we're going to operate on is evil desires. And we're, we're almost obligated, bound to those evil desires. But when you accept Jesus Christ as Lord, you are now given by God's power a divine nature. In other words, an ability to counter the flesh. Now, the, the problem for the life of the believer is while we're in the flesh in this body, we're going to have this tension between two natures. We're going to have a, a still evil desires, and we're going to still have a divine nature that calls us to that which is better and higher and gives us a way out. And yet we're going to have those intentions. I want you to understand that the song, the beauty of the life of the believer is in the tension. There does come a day when we're in heaven and the tensions of life, they're removed, they're gone. But until then, we're going to live in the tension between the divine nature that God gives us and our earthly desires. The beautiful thing is we have God's Holy Spirit, and as we participate with him, we watch as our life is transformed from one more and more and more into the likeness of Jesus Christ until we meet him face to face. Isn't that good news? Formerly, all we had was the sin nature, and we just by compulsion had to obey it. But now we have an option. Now we have a choice. Now we have the power of God living in it so that we may participate in the divine nature, having escaped corruption in the world caused by evil desires. See, if it's all up to you or to me, then we lose hope. We're going to fail. We need something more than just our own motivation. We need something more than just what we think we have to make it where we want to go. We've got to have something more to live a godly life than just us, because if it's all up to us, we're going to fail so God gives us something that's awesome. He gives you his promises. And you say, well, why would God give me promises? Why do I need to read the scripture and find out what promises God gives me? Why would God make promises? Is that setting it up so that if it doesn't happen? No, no, We've got to understand what God's promises are. That God understands that we're weak, that we're fragile, that we're, we need courage. And so he gives us promises because as we watch his promises that he gives us come to fruition, we realize I can now have courage to participate in who he now calls me to be. If he just says, I call you to have this divine nature and participate with my Holy Spirit in that, you're going, I'm afraid to. I don't know if I have what it takes. But fortunately, God gives us his promises. Your first fill in the blank is that God's promises give you and I courage to participate in who you now are. So God's going to give us some promises, and what do they do? They help give us courage to move toward him. Because on our own, we're going to stay away. Like, God, well, thank you for giving me a new nature, but I'm afraid. I don't know if I have what it takes. So God gives us his promises. You say, well, what kind of promises? Let me give you an example of four. First of all, God gives you promises. He promises never to leave you nor forsake you. In Hebrews 13, 5, the author encourages us, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. 
Some of you in this room, you've stopped believing a promise of God. You started to think, I think God's fed up with me. I think God is ashamed of me. I don't know that God would ever accept me, or I've been too distant for too long. I don't think God would run toward me. I don't think he would have reckless love like that song that we talked about. And it's, it's not that God's love is reckless as in like without thought. It means that God put him own self, Jesus Christ, at risk recklessly. He's going to endure punishment and persecution and suffering and take our sins on the cross so that he can Forgive us of our sins and love us and we can be with him. Why? Because he has promised he'll never leave us. He'll never forsake us. He's going to demonstrate that with his own blood. And I'm never going to leave you. I'm never going to forsake you. And oftentimes when we think that God's going to leave us or he's going to forsake us, we turn toward money to be our security. And money never truly makes us secure. He'll never leave us. He'll never forsake you. It's a promise. So when I believe that promise, God, you're, even when I've wandered, even when I've done what is wrong, even when I've ignored you, God, even when I've outright backslidden and sinned and made bad choices, that you'll never leave me, you'll never forsake me, like I can step back toward you and participate with the divine nature you've put inside me. Yes! That's his grace. Second promise. God promises to give you a way to escape temptation 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. See, God doesn't cause the temptation, but he realizes we're going to be tempted. It's just the way it works. And when we're tempted, where before we were under compulsion to our sin nature, now God gives us his divine nature. We have an option to take the way out so that we can do what is right. But sometimes we feel like the temptation's too great, it's too strong, it's too overwhelming, and, and yet God has promised, listen, even in that moment, I will still give you a way out so that you can endure it. God will give you wisdom when you ask. James chapter 1, verse 5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. You say, God, I, I, I've been confused. I don't know what the wise thing to do is. God, I need wisdom. And some of you might feel like, I don't even know if I could ask you, God, because I haven't talked to you in a long time. And, and God's saying, ask. I, I will offer wisdom to you impartially. I'm not going to take into account whether we've been on conversing terms. Ask me. And if you ask, I will help you understand what the wise thing to do really is. I'll help you walk in that. God promises. What does it do? It gives us courage. Okay, well, then, then if I don't know, I can ask. God will forgive your sins when you and I confess them to him. 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. What good news that is, right? That we can go directly to God. We don't have to go through a priest. We don't have to go through another person. That we basically confess our sins to God. Now sometimes we need to take our sins that we've confessed to God and we do need to tell them to a trusted brother or sister so that we may be healed because we're forgiven, but we may not be healed until we confess to somebody else. There's a freedom to that. But God is saying, listen, if you confess your sins, I will forgive you of your sins. I will purify you 
from all unrighteousness. So God's promises give you and I courage. We're there. We have a sin nature. We've got now a divine nature. And all of a sudden we're going, how do I have courage to participate with the divine nature? God goes, I'll give you promises. That's what Peter is saying. God has given you and I promises to give you and I courage to participate with the divine nature that he placed in us. It's courage in the face of opposition. And you might be facing opposition right now. It's courage in the face of insecurity. And you may have been very insecure in this season of your life. It's courage in the face of hardness of heart, knowing that you're doing what's wrong and yet acting in that way anyway. And God's going to give you courage to walk away from that. Courage in the face of temptation. Courage in the face of just being apathetic and just being carried along by life and being lazy and not, not working to participate with God's Holy Spirit. Courage in the face of persecution. That's great news. So here it is. God gives you a divine nature, but he gives you his promises that give you and I courage to begin to participate with it. That is very, very good news. On your outline, second, simply having faith isn't God's plan for the believer. All the time people say this, well, as long as I have faith. As long as I have some sort of faith, you know, and I hear it at funerals. I hear it in people talking to each other. It's kind of like, well, even if life is rough, as long as you have some sort of faith. And, and it's almost this idea that, that I can just live and be carried along by life. But as long as I have something I call faith, then I'm all good. And the reality is simply having a faith is never God's plan for the believer. Faith is something that we give. We give our faith to the work that Jesus Christ did on the cross. And it's because of giving faith to the work that Jesus did on the cross, by his power then, we are saved. Not by our doing, it's all by him. He draws us to himself. He elected us before the creation of the world. And he draws us and we respond to that. We give faith and place that in him. But he didn't say, just give me your faith and then just go back to living how you lived. But give me your faith because when you give me your faith, I come in, I bring the divine nature, and I begin to transform your life. So participate with this and don't just be bound by your old sin nature. So it's never God's plan. In fact, at Sun Grove Church, we say it this way. We say, encounter God. That you're going to encounter God that even right now as we're looking at his word and you're letting God's Holy Spirit speak to you in your life and your circumstances on the inside, that we encounter God. Then we want to say you want to grow through community, that we don't just grow on our own, that we've got to be with other people who give us courage. We've got to be with other people who we watch their life and we say, you know what? You are showing me how to walk with Jesus. You are showing me how to have courage in the face of opposition. And when I look at the opposition of my life, I gain courage. So we want to get in circles, not just be a church of rows, but a church of circles where we gather together and we grow through community. And last, we want to live our calling. That means God has prepared in advance work for you and I to do. That he prepared for us before the creation of the world, the Bible says. So before the world was created, God had you in mind and he said, I want you to participate with the divine nature. I want you to be a world changer in the ways that I've gifted you. You're not going to look like everybody else. You're going to look at the way God has designed you to change the world. And so we say, encounter God, grow through community, live your calling. You know what that is? That's the Great Commission reversed. Some of you are like, I don't know what the Great Commission is. Well, here's Jesus. He's on earth. He's risen from the dead. He's about to ascend to heaven and leave his disciples. The disciples are going, you'll never leave us or forsake us, but you're about to leave. 
right? All they knew was physical Jesus. Jesus is here. Jesus was dead. He wasn't here. Jesus came back from the dead. He's here. Now he's going to ascend up to heaven. He'll be gone. What do we do? Jesus says, wait for my Holy Spirit. That's the divine power that gives you the power to participate with the divine nature. So that's going to come. I'm never going to leave you, never forsake you. And so the last instructions that Jesus gives to his church and the people who would become his church, you and me, he gives us these, it's not, a, people say a commission. It's a weird word. It's really Jesus's commandment. It's, his, it's an imperative. It's not optional. It's not if you feel like it or if you get around to it, this is his command. It's an imperative. He says this in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, okay, he's saying, I've got all authority. This is coming from the highest source of all sources. Therefore, and now here's my imperative. Here's my command. He says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all, everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. When we say encounter, grow, and live, we're talking about that process, but it typically happens in the life of the believer opposite, that we encounter God first. He's with us always. We can know God. We can trust him. We can put our faith in him. He's real. Then we learn to obey everything that God has commanded. We begin to participate with the divine nature. And Peter's going to show us in just a minute what that can look like. And then we go. We go and make disciples. We go out. We live our calling in the way that God has designed you and me to live out our life in the world for the sake of a lost world because of his love for that world. So encounter and grow and live is when you and I begin to live out and be the church to live the Great Commission. So God gives us everything we need to add to our faith because simply having faith was never God's intent for the believer. That we're not just to have faith, but we're to add to it. And so Peter says, listen, add to your faith. Learn how to add to it in an increasing measure. And he says this, he says, add to your faith goodness. And goodness, knowledge, and knowledge, self-control, and self-control, perseverance, and perseverance, godliness, and godliness, mutual affection, and mutual affection, love. We add to our faith these things, and we're to add to these things in our life in increasing measure. That's a beautiful thing. Wouldn't you like to be more loving as a person in five years from now than you are right now? So just five years from now, you look back and go, I am so, I'm far more loving. I'm softer with people. I actually love in action, not just in word. I actually care for people. Wouldn't it be great five years from now to be more loving than you are right now? What a great thing that would be. Wouldn't you like to be more self-controlled in four years from now than you are right now? Where now you often give into that sin nature, but wouldn't you say, wow, over the last four years, I have grown immeasurably in beginning to participate with God's divine nature at work in my life. Wouldn't you like to have more spiritual knowledge in three years from now than you have right now? You, got, you stopped getting the point of going, well, I, I just don't know the Bible well enough. And you said, you know what? It might take me three years, but I'm going to read the Bible. And after I've read the Bible, I'm going to know what the Bible says. I'm going to understand God's promises. I'm going to know them personally, not just hearing them from somebody else. You're going to begin to add to your faith knowledge and not just be like, well, I don't know, I'll get to it someday, right? Wouldn't, how, wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't you like to be more godly to know that you can stick it out? You can persevere through tough circumstances. Be assured of that more than you are right now because you're kind of on the fence. I don't know. I don't know if I'll make it. Wouldn't it be great in three years from now to be way more self-assured 
that God's given you everything he needs. Wouldn't you like to love the others in the church and be loved by them and be more deeply connected to them than you are right now? Even in the next six months, you just said, wow, I'm, I love the church. I know more people in the church. I've gotten in a circle. I've gotten more connected. I'm growing with other people than you are right now. In just six months, wouldn't that be great to add that to your faith? So it's time. You say, time for what? It's time to level up. It's time to add to this base of faith these things that Peter begins to talk about. Because God wants to transform our lives and he doesn't want us to wander from him too far because we become self-deluded at that point in time. He wants us to participate with his divine nature. Time to add to our faith goodness and knowledge and self-control and perseverance and godliness and mutual affection and love. Peter says this in verse 8. He says, for if you possess these qualities in increasing what? In increasing measure. They will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. What happens for people sometimes is they grab a hold of faith and they don't add to it any of these things. And then they say, I tried faith and it just didn't work. I just kept going back to my sin nature. It just, it didn't, I tried faith and it didn't work for me. Well, why? Because they thought the end of the game was faith and, and God's intent was never for us simply to have faith, but to have faith and because of faith to add to it. Now let me be very careful. The good works that we do are evidence of genuine faith. They are not the thing that saves. So my good works don't save me. It's Jesus' work on the cross that saved me. Let me be very clear that it's all about Jesus. It will always be about Jesus. It was his initiation, his work, always about Jesus. But when I give faith to what Jesus did on the cross, he gives me his divine nature and says, now participate, and out of that will come good fruit, good results, good work, your life will begin over time to transform. And you begin to watch that. So the good news is that selfishness and atrophy lead to a faith that's ineffective. However, God gives the ineffective everything you need to become effective. You might say, I've been ineffective for a while. I've been ineffective for a long time. And maybe you were effective at one time, but you realize I'm not so effective right now. I'm pretty unproductive when it comes to walking with Jesus, and the good news is Jesus is saying, I've given you everything you need to take a step back toward me and to participate with the divine nature I place in you. That nature's not gone. Come back, and you'll find that he relentlessly pursues you, and he will run to you and meet you right where you are in your ineffective, unproductive state, and he will say, let's go and let's grow. That's good news. Thank you, Lord. First Peter 1 Peter 1.9, he gives us a warning light. He says, that's available. You've got everything you need, but I got to give you a warning light. You know when that happens in your car, like a light comes on your dash, and you're like, what is that? And you know something might be wrong with your car, and you begin to look at it. Well, God, in this passage, through Peter, is giving us a warning light. He's saying, all this is available. You've got everything you need, but let me give you a warning light. And in verse 9, he says this, but whoever does not have them, in other words, maybe all they started with was faith, is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they've been cleansed from their past sins. So what does this look like for you and me? What's the indicator that you and I are becoming unproductive, that we're becoming ineffective? 
It's when you and I begin to take our past sins and we go fishing and we throw, God has buried them in the deepest part of the sea, but we go fishing for them and we bring them up and we hold them before God and go, but I don't know, God, I don't know if I can be close to you because look how much I sinned. Look at who I've been. Look at my sin nature. And you begin to dredge up old things. That's a warning light for you and for me that you're stuck. You're ineffective, you're unproductive, and the nature of that is that the further you move away from God, the less likely you are to feel his love. You move over here and you're like, God, I, I just can't feel your love. It wasn't God who moved. It was we who moved. And it's when we begin to walk back toward God that the, he runs to us, his love becomes so apparent to us that he's been there for us all along, his, that we participate with the divine nature. So an indicator of your life or my life is if you're pulling up your past sins, even as a believer, and you're holding those up before God, and you're making self-accusation, it's an indicator that you're not participating with the divine nature. It's time to encounter God, to grow through community, to live your calling. And the beautiful thing is, he gives you everything you need to become effective to live a godly life. So what do we do? Number five on your outline, make every effort to confirm your calling and your election. So internal results are a sign that you're participating with God's divine nature and not merely giving in all the time to your sin nature. You are the elect of God. You were chosen. You say, what does that mean? It means by God and his foreknowledge, by God and his divinity, that before the creation of the world, he said, I will someday draw you to myself and you will receive forgiveness of your sins. I want you to be part of my forever family. And God has said, I have made you elect. And people have debated election for years. And theologians, guys smarter than you, smarter than me, have debated this for years. And they've come out on different sides. And the point is, God can do whatever God wants to do, and God can think whatever God wants to think, and he does, and what we know from scripture is that God thought about you, and God loves you, and God wants you to be with him, and so there's this, this blending of our calling and our election, and so when we participate with the divine nature, we're saying, God called, and I responded. When we participate with the divine nature, we go, God in his sovereign grace decided to call me to himself. I don't get it. I don't understand it. What kind of love is that? It's a beautiful thing. And so what is Peter saying? Listen, works don't save you, but works are a confirmation that you're participating with your divine nature, which means that you put your faith in Christ and God called you to himself. He elected you. So they're an indicator. They're not the source of salvation. They are the product of someone who's saved. Does that make sense? We don't put our faith and trust in our works. We put our faith and trust in Jesus' work and his work on the cross. And that's what saves. So there's this beautiful thing that you and I are growing in an increasing measure. And we're becoming more and more firm as the return of Christ approaches. And you say, well, I don't know when that's going to happen. That's okay. Scripture says that nobody knows when that's going to happen. You might have a friend who, you know, has all sorts of conspiracy theories, and they may think that Jesus is never coming back. Well, let me tell you, them with all their education and degree, which may not be much, also at the same time, Jesus is coming back, and he knows the date and the hour and the time, and he's made a promise about it, and God hasn't broken his promises. He's going to come back, so you and I participate more and more, standing firm as the return of Christ nears. Can you imagine, just for a moment, actually do me a favor, just close your eyes for a moment. I want you just to engage your imagination. So just close your eyes so you're just thinking about your own life. 
Can you imagine stopping your despair and actually leaning into the promises and the power of God to live a godly life? What if you and I dropped our excuses? Can you imagine dropping our excuses and walking and leaning into the calling of God in your life and participating with his divine nature that he's given you everything you need to live a godly life? Can you imagine for a moment if you're just not stuck, if you're not done, and that God is inviting you to participate with the divine nature that he's already placed in you? God has given you and I everything you need. And with your heads bowed, your eyes closed, there's only, there's only some people in here who don't have everything they need. If you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you have everything you need to participate with the divine nature that God has put in you. But there are some of you in this room, you said, I've never realized that Jesus' death on the cross could cancel out my sin. I never realized that Jesus' death on the cross satisfied God's righteous wrath against all the things I've ever done wrong, and it paid for them in full, so I'm free to put faith in what Jesus did on the cross. And it's by putting faith in what Jesus did on the cross, by giving faith to that, by putting belief behind that action is how you are saved. And you say, well, how do I do that? You just do that simply by asking Jesus to come into your life. You want to tell him that you believe in what he did on the cross. If that's you here today, you've never received Jesus as Lord, then right now, just we just call it prayer, but it's you just talking to God. So just quietly in your seat, just in your heart, God hears you, but you just pray something like this. Jesus, today I give you me. I ask you to come into my life and make me a new creation. I choose to believe that your death on the cross forgives me of all my sin. Would you wash me as white as snow and give me your divine nature so that I can have a new heart from this day forward? Today, Jesus, I give you me. Believers in the room, this is a moment of decision for you. This is a moment for you to admit to God, maybe, maybe you've been pulling up old sins and holding them up before God and that warning light has gone on that you're becoming unproductive, you're ineffective. Maybe it's been your excuses and maybe today you just wanna be honest with God. God, I am just gonna turn back to you and be honest about where I've been and that honesty is gonna engage your compassion to me. And would you just take a moment, believers, this is your moment to just be honest with God that you will participate with his Holy Spirit and begin to follow him and stop making excuses. Let's do that together, just in a moment of silence. We're thankful for you. Thank you for the gift of your son. Thank you, God, for what you're doing in and through us, how you bring us to new life. God, how you bring us back to life. Thank you for the words of Peter, even in his great sacrifices. He was able to write and encourage and encounter our doubts and our fears. God, we thank you for that. We look forward to all that you'll teach us in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Thank you for listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For information on Sun Grove Church, visit our website at sungrove.org.